Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. We're just about to launch Season 3, and this is a bonus episode. What better time to reflect on the beginning of the podcast with highlights from the episodes in Season 1. Our sponsor from the beginning has been and continues to be Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte. If you love books, Park Road Books is the place for you. Please stop by the store to buy local for your next great read. The store is right there in Park Road Shopping Center with the big blue letters. You can find out more about the podcast at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. Our website has author photos, episode show notes with details about the authors and their work, and links to our social media platforms and our YouTube channel. But enough with the preface to this show. Let's get to the memories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. Season one of Charlotte Reader's podcast is where everything got started. The idea, the learning, and the local authors willing to take a chance to read and talk about their work. As we move from season two to season three, and as our listenership continues to grow, it seemed right to remember the 11 brave authors who came into the studio with me at the beginning, at a time when I didn't know the difference between a mixing bowl and a mixing board. They're the ones who took a chance on me when I had very little clue what I was doing. Today I'll offer my reflection, set up the clips, and let you hear some of the readings and conversations with the first season authors. My hope is that if you're new to the podcast, you will hear some voices that you'd like to spend more time with, which you can do by listening to complete episodes in season one. And if you've heard them before, hopefully you'll enjoy this uh, anthology. You can listen to this podcast wherever you like to get your podcasts, or at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. So let's get to it. The first thing I need to do is express my gratitude uh, to the people who helped me get this podcast off the ground. I had this idea in the summer of 2018. I set it into retirement at the end of the year. I'd written some short stories and a few books myself, and I was trying to decide what to do with life after 35 years as a trial lawyer. I knew I wanted to write a little more, but I also knew I didn't want to be behind a computer screen all day. And I thought about how I might engage with other authors, and, well, this idea just came together. I figured I could ask questions since I've been doing that most of my career as a lawyer. I like listening to authors talk about their work. Okay, uh, I'll start a podcast. Anyway, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I spoke with Sarah Vavra, a friend and former radio personality, yoga instructor and massage therapist, and she offered to take me into a podcast studio. She had a membership at Advent Coworking, and they had a podcast studio, which is actually where I'm recording today. I accepted the invitation. But I needed some authors, so I quickly called on two fellow writers from the Charlotte Writers Club, Paul Krizeha and Susan Proctor, to do the test episodes and be sort of my guinea pigs for this project. I didn't have any audio equipment, just an SD card. Sarah joined us in the studio, and she ran the mixing board. Those test episodes became the first two episodes of Season 1, which launched in October 2018. Thanks, Sarah, Paul, and Susan for helping me get started. The next step was figuring out how to do this thing called podcasting on my own. I got a referral at Advent uh, to Robert Ingalls, a fellow lawyer who's been podcasting for a long time and who has a business called LawPods.com where he helps lawyers launch their podcasts and run them too. 
Robert taught me how to use the audio recorder, what equipment to buy, where I should go to get editing software, and how to get my episodes in the podcast world. He also saved me several times, and the technical glitches of the podcast world stumped me. Thank you, Robert, for pushing me out of the nest with a flight plan. But you can't have a podcast without a website. Well, you can, but then where do you engage with your audience? Where do you put your show notes, and how do you drive interest to the podcast? Yep, you need a website. Fortunately, I found Tom Patachi. I'm probably butchering your last name, Tom. I'm sorry. You can find Tom's good work for me by visiting charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thanks, Tom, for the website and your continuing help. And thanks to Sally Brewster, James, Shauna, Megan, Sherry, and all the staff at Park Road Books uh, for the sponsorship and your support of the podcast. Finally, you can't have an interview podcast without someone to interview. This is where the authors of Season 1 come in. We had 11 authors in a wide variety of genres, and each of them read their work and happily answered my questions. At least, they appeared happy about it. When you listen to the clips today, keep in mind that there's a learning curve in audio, and I'm getting better, I think. For example, I learned in Season 1 that if the host, me, continues to breathe into his microphone while the author reads, it sounds a bit like a dirty old man's in the room. I now turn my mic to the side while the authors read. Now, in addition to all these people and the fine folks at Advent co-working where I record, I'm grateful to you, the listener, because without you, none of this matters. You know, the old tree falls in the forest thing. I'm also grateful that the website's email list, Facebook page, Twitter page, and Instagram page have more than one subscriber and more than one follower, which is kind of where we started out in October. Now, about this episode... It was hard to decide what clips to play from the season one episodes. There were too many good stories and points to choose from and too many good conversations. So my apologies to the authors for cutting any parts out that were dear to them. In the end, I was constrained on time and decided to pick what resonated with me. We start first with our memories uh, with episode one of season one, uh, Paul Krzeha. Paul's a corporate lawyer who's been writing fiction and poetry on the side and getting his work published over the last five years with good success. I met him at the Charlotte Writers Club uh, and asked him uh, to be on the show. Paul reads uh, several poems, uh, an essay, and a couple of short uh, flash fiction pieces in, in episode one. You can hear a clip that involves his poem, Sonnet to Tinder. You're also going to hear uh, an excerpt from his piece, Juxtapose. And then there's a conversation between Paul and I about uh, lawyers who want to be writers. I know this is the, you're bringing us all the way to the present now because... When I was dating, we didn't have this thing called Tinder, right? And this is your what? Give me your title. Sonnet to Tinder. Sonnet to Tinder. All right, let's hear Sonnet to Tinder. O failing app of Aphrodite's curse, its name will tease with hopes and dreams of fire. But leave me only in smoke and tears, alone in dark and cold at night again. A swipe to right results in no response again. I stare at comment screens so bare. My cycloptic picture reveals me now. I stand too fat, too bald, too old, too dull. I try to will my love into the world. I carve her face in stone and text the gods. I wear a bra upon my brow and chant in hopes of swiping her into my life. I kiss the screen and wish for her warm lips, but taste of only the cold, hard screen. Okay, I like this. A, a swipe to right results in no response. That's how it works, right? You... That is how Tinder works. Okay. <laughs> now, swipe. in my defense, <laughs> yeah, I have never been on Tinder myself. Okay. In case my wife is listening, I want to make this clear. <laughs> but I have many a friend who has, and this uh, is sort of where I've learned about this. 
uh, I'd always had an interest in writing. Uh, and interestingly, as, as a lawyer, although we do use wherefores and hereofs, <laughs> uh, you write every day. Uh, and you learn to write clearly uh, and well. Yeah, but nobody wants to read what lawyers but write. But you don't write it creatively, so it is a very different skill set. Exactly. Uh, but but it, it did allow and does allow lawyers to, to have an ability to shift over to fiction writing if they want to use their imagination and sort of change the way they write. And that's been the part of the big struggle is to try to not to write like a lawyer. At the library, I sequester myself into a corner to cram for midterms. My phone buzzes on the desk like an insistent mosquito. It's my father, calling to again wish me luck or pass on some sage advice. I don't answer. On sentry duty, he squats in the dark by the perimeter wire. In the nearby hills, the sporadic echo of gunfire is punctuated by explosions that vibrate the ground. His hands shake as he checks his rifle. He wants to talk to the corporal a few yards away, but can't. It might draw fire. I'm 21. I cross the crowded stage, tassels swaying in my eyes to collect a rolled degree from a robed professor. As she shakes my hand, the polite applause is disturbed by the loud hoots of my father. He's 21. He receives his papers, boards a rumbling transport plane, and flies from his besieged base through enemy fire. Akak blasts, shake his lungs. Shrapnel punctures the heavy body bags that fill the plane's hold. And another image he decides to never discuss. When he lands, he's handed a beer, which he drinks like gold. At home, he greets me at the door, then opens a beer while wearing his extravagant grin. It's years before I understand why. You may have heard a female voice laughing during one of Paul's readings. That was Susan Proctor. Susan and Paul were in the studio together uh, when we recorded uh, those first two episodes. After Paul finished, uh, Susan uh, stepped up to the mic. Uh, she read several short memoir pieces uh, in uh, episode two of season one. Uh, today, uh, you're going to hear um, a couple of clips. Uh, one, uh, a conversation she and I had uh, after she read her piece, uh, Shoe Shine Sundays, where she talks about uh, reflections and getting into the writing zone. Um, we also have a short clip where she took issue with Southern writer Rick Bragg's assessment of where you can find the best fried chicken in the United States. And then we end with my favorite uh, piece that she read, in that episode. It's called My Mitch. Uh, it's a story about uh, uh, Susan's son and her su- and Susan going to pick him up uh, at college after the first semester. Uh, after uh, their struggles financially to get him in, he didn't quite make the grade in one class to be able to go back for the next semester. And she wanted to fix it because so much was at stake. And then something uh, miraculous uh, in her view happened. Yeah. And, and um, writing that piece, and I think I said to you, Landis, it um, you know, reminds me of the immortality of influence. That influence continues to live on just as much as when you're seven years old polishing shoes together. Yeah, that's, that's great. And so I can see how this story started out. Um, you had an idea, you're talking about the shoe shines, but then it turned into a message toward the end, right? I mean, and that probably came to you through the course of writing. You know, it's... It, the, you hear people talk about being in a zone and I think when I do sit down and say well I'm going to write some today and get at the computer because I I still work so I have limited time 
But when I start writing, I can sit down at 10 o'clock in the morning and it's 4 in the afternoon and I have no idea of it. So I find that the writing kind of cleans me out. <laughs> right. It's kind of a magical thing. It is kind of a magical thing. And, and it's... Um, it's exhilarating because you don't know where you're going to go. You certainly don't end up where you intended to go. <laughs> well, then you're not a proponent of the outlining process, I take it. No, no outline. <laughs> you're, you're what they call a pantser, right? The, yeah. yeah. Seat of the pants. That's, Seat that's of the pants. a good word for right, it, yeah. Right. Only be because you've never been to Price's Fried Chicken in Charlotte. At Price's, you can not only get a plate of your main chicken parks, you can also get a dinner of fried liver or gizzards. And you can eat it right there on the sidewalk or carry it to the nearby ladder park or take it home if you can stand to wait that long with that smell filling up your car or just eat it traveling. <laughs> I remember going to Price's with my friends Barbara for lunch hour. We got chicken livers and took it to the park to eat. I don't remember what got Barbara so tickled, but she laughed so hard she snorted chicken livers out <laughs> her nose. <laughs> that was a good day. But the real thing is this, even if it would, I don't want you to, Mom. These are my grades. I blew my chance, not you. He wiped his tears and continued in a somewhat softer voice to lay out a plan. I figure I can take history at the community college. It's a required course, and my grade will transfer. I've already checked it out. I'll take that one class, and I'll work to pay for it. I know I can make an A. And then I can ask for another chance next semester. But whatever happens, Mom, I promise you I won't quit. Well, I drove on in silence, not trusting myself to speak and allowing my own tears to fall. Not four months ago, he would have had a list a mile long of all the reasons why he failed, all the people whose fault it was, the teacher who just didn't like him, the advisor who couldn't advise, the roommate who played his music too loud, a list with everybody's name on it but his. But now, no excuses, no blame, just responsibility and a plan. <sighs> My fingers loosened a little on the steering wheel. I reminded myself to breathe. The stomach spasms eased up. This was not the boy I brought to college. No, this was a minch. Minch is the Yiddish word we reserve for those special few people whom we hold in the highest esteem, those who earn our deepest respect. I met such a young man on a sunny, crisp December afternoon on the campus of East Carolina University, and in that moment of recognition, all the years of being a single parent, of feelings of inadequacy, sleepless nights, they paid their dividends in full. I'd raised a bench. Episode three of season one was the most downloaded episode of the season. Author Kathy Afrio read from her book, Rock, Paper, Scissors, Scenes from a Charmed Divorce. She read five complete vignettes from the book about her marriage, separation, divorce, co-parenting, and re-entry into the dating world. In the clips you're here today, uh, you're gonna hear um, from the preface of the book, then you hear a conversation uh, that we had where Kathy talks about the fear of putting her personal story into the world. Uh, there's also a humorous clip about uh, her getting on Bumble.com after a conversation with her ex-husband about online dating. Um, and then a, a short clip where I asked her about her final thoughts related to the topic of divorce. Our story could never be a country music song. 
We didn't leave each other for another. We didn't have to sell the family home. I didn't have to go back to work to support myself. There wasn't addiction, domestic violence, or mental illness in the mix. We didn't have to split friends or jockey for alliances. Our children continue to thrive. I've learned that divorce is an illusion, especially when kids are involved. You can end the marriage, live apart, date other people, even fall in love again, and you are still tied to the other person in ways you may not realize and almost certainly don't want. While married, I came to believe that marriage is a flawed institution, and now I see that divorce is too. Originally, this was going to be a book about my adventures walking the Camino de Santiago, but that's not the book that wanted to be written. Instead, it's about my inner odyssey on the path of divorce, the metaphorical Camino I've been walking since 2010. The author Danny Shapiro says that writing a memoir is not about what happened, but what the fuck happened. How do you walk away from a highly functional relationship and a perfectly good guy? How do you pledge fidelity to your soul and agree to blow up your life simultaneously? How do you jerk the rug out from under your children and assign yourself sole accountability for changing the trajectory of their 10- and 12-year-old lives? When was the first time we did or said something or left something unsaid that put us on the path to divorce? If a warning bell had sounded, could we have righted ourselves? Or does marriage have a shelf life and our time was simply up? Was it all just a big misunderstanding, the uncoupling? Did I make it all up? Could we have tried harder, different, better? If we're this civil and even friendly, then why exactly did we split up? This is the story of a charmed divorce. Did you have some trepidation <laughs> about whether to put this into the world after all the work you put into writing it? Are you kidding me? I mean, of course. Um, yes, I, I thought on more than one occasion, I was like, who does this? This is nuts. Don't, don't put personal stuff like, out, you know, like this out there. And I had all manner of feeling, and um, primarily for my children. And um, I didn't want to in any way you know, damage them or for that matter, embarrass them or, um, and of course my, everybody wants to know if my ex-husband has read this. And of course he did. I, I wouldn't put anything out without him knowing ahead of time, but I, I was very unsure, but it got to this, it got to this place where I couldn't not do it. I just felt really compelled to share the story and I kept talk, trying to talk myself out of it and um, not unlike walking the Camino for that matter. I, I felt compelled to walk the Camino those six years ago and I was like, oh, who does that? You can't go over there and do that and the, I, all manner of trying to talk myself out of that. But it was a similar feeling of um, just sort of following the energy with something and trusting that it was the right thing to do. Once home, I decide to get on Bumble.com, and within a few moments, I'm swiping through an array of men my age. Is it more bizarre that he suggests I try out Bumble, or that he is one of the very first matches that pops up on my phone? Or perhaps most bizarre is seeing him there and finding his photo and bio appealing, as if I hadn't known him since he was 18 seeing him for the first time at age 50 in a purple-striped button-down shirt I didn't know he owned, 
exuding the same quiet confidence that pulled me in the first time. Who is this man now? Would I choose him again? You know, I think the the thing I think about is it, it it's a huge decision and some people get to make the decision and other people this decision is thrust upon them um, and it's you know it's a big one and I think it really requires a lot of soul searching and a lot of telling yourself the truth about um, what's happening in your life and whether or not it's sustainable or not and and to have like really deep difficult conversations um, not only with your, your partner and spouse, but with yourself. Episode four, season one, came out around the time of Halloween. What better time to have a horror author on the show? Author Brooke Reynolds is a veterinarian who will scare you with her writing. I met her at the Charlotte Writers Club and asked her to be on the show. She read three stories, uh, Night at the Shockplex, Jerry Fed the Tigers, and Extraction. In the clips you hear today, uh, Brooke talks about what drew her to the horror genre. She also talks about how she gets ideas uh, in her everyday work of being a veterinarian, some of her favorite writers. And then finally, we've got an excerpt from that last piece, Extraction. Uh, It's a short story about a trip to the dentist to fix a broken tooth that becomes a nightmare that's not a dream. It'll make you think twice about your next trip to the dentist. I guess it all started when I was a little girl. My dad used to bring home kind of all the classic 80s horror films, and I'd sneak downstairs with him and watch these movies. He later got in trouble when I'd wake up with nightmares, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom had to deal with it later. But you wanted more. You wanted more, right? Yeah. I like the suspense, um, and that has kind of kept my interest in horror. So... I like to read horror, I like to watch horror movies, um, and I always think they're a challenge how creative they are to come up with these twists and get somebody to read a story where they actually feel something, their heart races, they're on edge while reading, wanting to continuously flip the page. So I thought that was a great challenge to take on when I started writing, and it's kind of been my niche and what seems to work. You're a veterinarian by trade, correct? Correct. As you're working during the day on uh, trying to save the lives of cats and dogs and others, are you thinking about these horrible thoughts, these ideas? Do they come to your mind as you're working? They do. Um, Certainly the last story we read, which we'll get to that, of course, um, that was definitely inspired by my everyday work. Um, But I think a lot of what I use in my story, I try to take things that I've learned throughout my career as a veterinarian. So whether I put animals in there or a lot of medical jargon or obviously the gory details, um, I get a lot from surgery and seeing gross wounds. Things like that are great to include in a horror story. (laughs) (laughs) So who who are some of your favorite horror writers? Um, Kind of a wide range. Chuck Palahniuk is one. Um, He definitely writes dark, literary, um, and some of his stories are considered horror as well. And the obvious Stephen King. Clive Barker is another one that I definitely enjoy reading. Um, Those are some of the bigger ones. Chase shivered. He heard the squeal and buzz of the high-speed drill as the dentist tested his instrument. Now, 
I usually create a gingival flap first, but I don't think you're going to hold still for that. So we'll do this the old-fashioned way, the rip and tear method. I'm going to remove the blindfold. I need to see your eyes to make sure you don't pass out, because if you do, then I have to wait until you wake up, and I am not a patient man. The dentist removed the blindfold. Chase blinked and squinted as his eyes adjusted to the light. He stared into his captor's eyes, an unnatural shade of green, brighter than anything human. Maybe it was the blinding overhead lights, but he swore that there was something almost reptilian about those eyes. Then the dentist blinked, his eyelids closing from the sides instead of from the top and bottom. Shall we begin? The dentist read the drill and it squealed to life. Chase watched as the drill inched toward his open mouth. He fought, turning his head left, right, and dodged the drill. Janine, the vice! Hold his head with the vice! The squeak of light tightening bolts and rubber padding on either side of Chase's head, just in front of his ears, squeezed together. He was immobilized. Good, said the dentist. The rev and squeal of the drill started again. The cut... The vibration, the whirl, the split, the pain, the steady flow of a metallic taste that choked Chase. In episode five of season one, author Kathy Collins uh, reads a number of her poems. Kathy's a poet and a co-founder of Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, a nonprofit dedicated to elevating the literary arts in the Charlotte area. In the clips today, Kathy reads from her poem, El Camino. We then have a conversation about reading the tea leaves and introspection and about what she was thinking when she was scrubbing the Wheaties off a plate in the sink, uh, which led to a poem she read on the show. Her family was enjoying themselves while she was hard at work. And then finally, uh, there's a clip where Kathy talks about what motivated her to write the final poem of the show called Serpent Sets the Record Straight, which is set in the Garden of Eden. El Camino. Take off your shoes and leave through the back. Don't bother locking the door or brushing your teeth. Your pajama bottoms have no pocket for a key, and the dogs you meet along the way will love all the more the rightness of your breath when you bend to properly greet them for the first time. Turn left. Start down the street on which you usually finish. Whistle some kind of blue and do not cross over to the other side when you see Mr. Blanton at the end of his drive, stooping for his paper. Perhaps he'll notice how slowly you walk today and won't ask you once again how you ever got to be so fast. Perhaps, if you stop, he will tell you how much he misses his wife, Marion, how he used to hate her breakfast prattle, her recitation of the headlines and the grocery list, how now it's all too quiet. Tell him you are sorry. Promise to look in on him from time to time. Mean it and walk on. Do not gaze once at your navel or down at your unpolished toes. Thank the landscapers who turn off their blowers when they see you coming near, as you always do, but this time also see them, the colors of their shirts, the shapes of their faces, arms that will later rock children to sleep, Fingers that will caress cold cans of beer and lovers' breasts before typing text messages to mothers back home where they may long to go 
or perhaps do not. You only know the way you are walking today, that you'll turn right instead of the usual left at the next street. See Boyce Pond from the west instead of the east. Be open to the possibility that you might sit for a minute or two with the Canada geese who seem to have forgotten the route to Canada. Maybe they'll honk the story of their abandoned annual pilgrimage home or demonstrate the proper way to kick and glide across the water to fresh patches of grass. Take their advice. Do not be a stoic. Obey your stomach when it growls for juice and toast and head up the hill for home. Wave and give a friendly smile to parents who nearly run you off the road as you pass the school. Remember that you are often running late and have been, on very rare occasion, just as rude. Remember also, as you climb the driveway's final yards, to forget to start your to-do list. Forget to fear the unlocked house and the sun's too rapid rise in the sky. Cross the threshold as a pilgrim, setting first foot into a holy shrine not knowing who's behind the door or which relics might be missing. Have you ever had your the tea leaves read? Uh, I have not yet yeah. done that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't I don't have I haven't either, but I I have some you know idea of what that might be and so it's looking for the pattern and the random. So when we're um you know t- talking about you as you um read my uh, bio earlier and we were, uh, you mentioned that I had a degree in mythological studies with an emphasis in um in Jung and Carl Jung it's this idea that what um what is going on inside of us deep in deep in the unconscious is projected and reflected in some outer experience so reading tea leaves or reading the clouds or any of these kind of things what we see in them is not really there. It's that it's what we see because it's what the inner life projected outward. And so um, I imagine that in looking um, down at this sink, it was like a, a giant teacup, and these weedies were the you know the uh, specks of tea. Um, and that if I really cared to look, uh, what what I I'm seeing a mess, and the mess is what's really inside of me, right? I'm 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 not evolved yet. So what okay. I'm trying to when but, I end the poem, I'm not evolved yet. This poem is um, is a poem that we call ekphrastic, and and what that is a it's a Greek word. Um, I don't know if that I remember exact the exact translation of of ekphrasis, but an ekphrastic poem or a piece of ekphrastic writing is a response, a poet's response to a piece of art. And um, that art could be um, visual, a piece of fine art. It could be uh, a ballet, a piece of music. Generally, though, it's a painting. In this case, um, this poem is a response to a photograph that I saw at an exhibit um, at the Light Factory. And uh, the the photograph was of a young girl about 10 or 11 standing um, in the woods and on a road in the woods and wrapped around her. She was just, you know, wearing shorts and a T-shirt, just a, you know, a little girl looked like she might be out at play. But wrapped around her was this giant snake, uh, some sort of a, you know, a 
uh, cobra or I guess a cobra, some, something like that that um, was obviously tame, but it was wrapped around her. And uh, I had immediately this, this vision of her as a young Eve in the garden. In episode six of season one, short story writer Gary Powell, who describes himself as a recovering lawyer, and I can certainly relate to that, reads three of his short stories from his new book, Getting Even and Other Stories. Uh, In the clips today, you'll first hear an excerpt from his piece, Fatherland. We then have a conversation about where he came up with the idea for another story he reads on the show about four guys in a bar uh, talking about women after playing tennis. And then finally, we have a clip from uh, one of his stories in the New South uh, section of his book. Um, It's actually set uh, in the Charlotte area. And it's got a little bit of a National Lampoon nod to it in terms of how everything could go wrong at a holiday that could go wrong. Fatherland. All week, the two little girls waged middle school wars, jammed into lockers by pimply-faced bullies and forced to eat cafeteria food. Friday afternoons, he drove from Kansas City to Des Moines to pick up what was left of them out front of the house he used to live in. The man who lived there now drank a beer and nodded from the stoop. The ex-wife, nowhere in sight. The older daughter was an awkward and anorexic blonde, blue-eyed and jangly, a replica of her mother. The younger daughter, a dark-haired beauty from his side of the family, curvy and busty already at 11, reminded him of his cousin Sheila, knocked up at 14. They stayed at Holiday Inns and Super 8s, Places offering vending machines, free breakfasts and indoor pools frothy with hot tub honeys and target quality cover-ups. For entertainment, he drove them past the insurance tower where he'd once worked, took them shopping at the mall, buying stuff they didn't need but insisted on having, hoping his acts of acquisition translated into acts of contrition. They knew every pizza and burger joint in town like Simon knew Garfunkel. They left gag ratings on napkins instead of tips. They sometimes splurged on Chinese takeout and watched pay-for-view movies. The fortune cookies encouraged perseverance and promised wealth. Never mind these weekends were costing him overtime, the price of gas guzzling his gonads. After the girls went to bed, he'd slip down the hall with a bottle of scotch and an iPhone, the lobby thick with wine coolers and other divorcee detritus. He'd check messages and shop for an app that guaranteed happiness, contributed to his 401k, and paid child support. Sunday evenings, driving back to KC, over that bay's rolling prairie, it was always the same. Guilt, doubt, and bug splatter. Coyotes gnawed as Goodyear tires, roadkill grinned from the side of the road by the light of a madman moon. So how did you come up with this? It's almost like somebody put a video camera up in the corner of a bar with four guys that are sitting around a table and just observing, you know, because it's, you know, it's it's almost stream of consciousness, but not one voice. Right. It's, it's four streams of <laughs> unconsciousness. <laughs> well, I think I think the story came uh, from uh, a couple of places. Uh, one is uh, I've, I've been uh, – ins- sports one way or another throughout my life i played baseball i was a gymnast in college uh and i was a runner and more recently i've been a 
tennis player and uh, I'm bold. Mm. I've been on bowling right. teams, but uh, and you know what? And there's always time for drinking after there's bowling or, or tennis t- or abs- golf or whatever it is. And wherever you get some guys together, the conversation always <laughs> turns to women, and it usually gets just dumber and dumber as the night goes on. And right. and so I think part of that came from this, and part of it is you know when guys guys rarely say what's on their minds unless they're unless they have some kind of bond like sports and usually over a few drinks and then maybe they might actually say to somebody what what they're actually feeling so part of that comes out here too i think bobby emptied a bag of charcoal into the half barrel and fitted a grilling grate over the top i reckon that'll work he said We walked back around front for the turkey. A scrawny dog lapped at the outer skin and nosed into the body cavity. God damn it, Bobby roared and kicked the dog in the ribs. The dog yelped and slinked away. Bobby leaned over. Damn cur licked the seasoning off. You mind asking Faye for the Cajun juice? I'll look for lighter fluid. I started for the door, but stopped when I heard gunfire. Bobby shook his head. Kid's on full fucking auto again. Ashley sat on Claire's lap, Diet Cokes and an open children's book before them on the kitchen table. One wine bottle stood empty on the counter next to the range, the bottle Claire and I had brought already half empty. Faye chopped onions with her butcher's knife and swayed to Toby Keith's American soldier playing on her tablet. I explained the situation with the propane. Are you shitting me, Faye said. I told her we planned to barbecue and that Bobby needed the Cajun juice. I already seasoned that turkey. There was a dog. Neighbor's dog? I described the dog. That's some bitch. She rummaged through an overstuffed cabinet until she found a bottle of vile-looking liquid and a large syringe. When she handed over the bottle and syringe, she spoke loud enough for Claire to hear. Tell Bobby to stick it in deep and squirt hard. He's good at that. I played along. I guess all men have a talent for that. Faye cackled. All I ever met did. How about you, Claire? Claire looked up from her reading. I hadn't noticed talent was involved. Faye nudged me. Maybe you're not doing it right. Maybe you need more practice. Practice, practice, practice. That's Bobby's motto. I started for the door, but Claire's voice caught me short. Can I have a word with you? In episode 7 of season 1, author Molly Barker, founder of Girls on the Run, reads a number of essays from her book, The Wisdom Stories. Molly was a recipient of the Daily Point of Light Award given by President Obama and former President Bush and worked with a bipartisan reform group in Washington seeking ways to bridge the political divide in Congress. Coming away from that experience disenchanted, She took off on a cross-country trip to have one-on-one conversations with people about how we can communicate with each other. Uh, In the clips today, you're going to hear an excerpt from her piece, Gladys, which is set along uh, the southern border. And we then have a conversation about her cross-country trip, about her frustrations, and about some of her thoughts in terms of how to deal with the polarization in America. Gladys. As I say elsewhere in these stories, in 2014, after a year and a half of working on Capitol Hill, I set off on a cross-country trip. 
With no specific itinerary, I drove from town to town, listening to Americans share from their own perspectives what was causing the highly polarized state of our nation. I was three weeks into the trip when I started talking with Gladys, the hostess at a restaurant in El Paso, Texas. Gladys pointed across the interstate. That's Juarez, Mexico, one of the most dangerous cities in all of Mexico. Violence there is so frequent, it's become commonplace, especially for women. You would be taking your life into your hands if you simply walked across the road and across the border. You will see the border police pacing along the Rio Grande. It's very surreal. I later asked one of my Texas friends to explain how this can be. El Paso is one of the safest cities in the United States, he explained. The cartel that has so corrupted the government, police, and security in Mexico wants no attention drawn to them, so they keep their illegal activity to just across the border. I tried to see across the river, but it was too dark. Gladys spoke Spanish. She grew up in El Paso, went to college, and returned. She was very friendly. I asked her what she thought about the people living in Mexico who are dropping their children on the American side of the border between the two countries. I understand why, she said. You will see Juarez in the morning when you head east on Interstate 10. I'm not a mother yet, but if I were a mom, I wouldn't know what else to do either. Joseph, my waiter, sat down at the table and joined in. We are a culture who bonds through polarization. It's not just politics. It's everywhere. It's in everything. The whole idea of divide and conquer, it's how we think. It's how we are trained. What can we do about it, I asked him. What we are doing right here, talking to each other and sharing our stories, this is what we can do about it. The next morning I headed east on the interstate. Just like Gladys told me, I saw the border patrol officer first. He was walking along the banks of the Rio Grande. Looking down into the river itself, I saw a fence there. Juarez is close enough that I could see it in detail. Shanties and shacks constructed out of what looked like cement blocks were crumbling down the mountainside. The roads were so poorly engineered that I wasn't sure cars could use them. I didn't see any cars, people, or life. There were bikes leaning up against cement walls and clothes hanging from clotheslines. They blew in the hot wind. I glanced back to the interstate ahead of me. The billboards, there were dozens of them, called to me. Gucci, Subway, Starbucks, Boots, Comfort Inn, Pandora. So you take this cross-country trip. Did you have any idea where you were going or where you were going to end up or what was going to happen? I had a little bit of an idea. So thanks to Girls on the Run, I have a social media platform that allowed me to sort of toss this out into the universe. And about 12 different people said, hey, come to my home. We'll host a group. And that was everywhere from uh, Williamsport, Pennsylvania to Denver, Colorado, uh, all the way down to Birmingham. So we would have gatherings of 10 to 30 people. Also, it was the in the random meetings where a lot of the really juicy conversations happened, you know, in a coffee shop or Starbucks or a truck stop, places like that, where my eyes were really opened. Do you think you found out anything on this journey that you could now take back to Washington that might be effective? I have. That is a great question. So I'm still in a position of inquiry at the moment. I almost feel like there needs to be a third way or a new emerging 
tactic, if that's that's not the right word, that supersedes or transcends what's happening on Capitol Hill. It's the way politics is and, and is so deeply entrenched. I don't know that what I'm advocating for would ever work in politics. So one of, you, one of the things you hear, which is, I don't know if it's an excuse or an explanation, but that the representatives in Congress are merely speaking for their constituents, and therefore, to be true to their constituents, they need to speak the language of their constituents. And oftentimes, that language coming from all different parts of the United States is so polarizing. And it sounds to me a little bit like this journey you take is where you get away from the larger conversations and break it down to individual conversations is that absolutely and I've I've written in the book I think we're going to read one of those stories about those tiny moments of change that occur where just the smallest door is opened and a person wakes up a little bit or becomes more self-aware of a bias they might have had those aren't going to occur when people are yelling at each other they're just not in episode eight of season one, author Paul Reale reads a flash fiction piece uh, and a short story. Uh, Paul is the other co-founder of Charlotte Center for Literary Arts. In this uh, set of clips, you're going to hear an excerpt from his flash fiction piece, How to Wake Up. We then have a conversation about what makes for good fiction and about uh, his own realization about being present in the world and the genre of flash fiction. She gingerly turns her head, a fragile thing. She waits for the stem of her neck to break, for her head to roll away on its own, for heart and lungs, hope and soul to escape the hole of her neck. She turns her head, and there is her husband. He is not dead, not dead, not buried, not gone. He's there. Her not-dead husband, right goddamn there. God damn it. God save her. God forgive her. Of course he's not dead. She has only just married him five weeks and three days ago. She is trapped here, trapped in this mistake. Again this morning, just after she wakes, she feels the sharp teeth of this trap. She is an animal clamped tight in this man-made monstrosity, still coming to terms with her imprisonment, wondering what it would mean to chew off her own leg to get free. Now a new feeling overtakes her, a slow spreading wave. Her hand is drawn to her belly. She knows, just knows, that she is pregnant. From crossing the boundary to the bed's other side on their wedding night. Tied to him now, even knowing she'll never cross that boundary again, will never let his hands near her. But also knowing that now he will never let her go. All is not well, an understatement, a bon mot, a joke she has somehow played on herself. She corrects herself. There are three ways to wake up. The third way is to wake feeling it's been all shot to hell, and seconds later, as she emerges from sleep's grand delusions, finding it is true. Waking this way, there is no relief, not even for a few seconds. She thinks maybe she has made it through these five weeks and three days, only because of those precious and peaceful seconds before she remembers. But she fears even that is now to be denied her. She looks across the bed at him, her husband. The very word sickens her. 
This third way she thinks, regret, giving way to deeper regret, is how she'll wake from now on. Unless she can find the fourth way, to wake in bliss and remain in bliss, the way a woman might wake with a baby asleep inside her or beside her, a baby that is hers and hers alone, free from the trap and its sharp teeth. She rises from the bed, stands and looks at the hunter on the other side, the creature who waited until their wedding night to reveal his true nature, to spring his trap. She looks, rubs her fingertips on her stomach, and knows what she must do. She does not need a new way to wake up. She needs a new way to be awake. I think a good piece of fiction has, um, has universal truths in it. And one of the things that I realize the older I get is that, that being awake, being aware, being present, being mindful, that these are, um, these are things that we don't think about necessarily in our early years. And this is taking that, that larger notion of being awake in your own life and puts it into a, just a small story. Here she realizes um, that she needs to be awake, not just in her marriage, but really in her life. She needs to take control of her life in a way that she hasn't up until now. And that's supposed to be a, a lesson in a way for, you know, for myself as the writer, for the reader, hopefully. Was there anything about you in this piece? I mean, I'm not saying in your marriage, so to speak, but just the idea of being awake, being present. Is it? Well, I think that's a uh, that's the work of the work of the second half of life, right? right. Is, is we've kind of gotten through some of the um, you know our basic development, and we start to realize that we need to pay more. At least I found out that I needed to pay more attention to kind of being conscious of my choices. Now, th- th- you consider this a flash fiction piece? Yes. Okay. Um, and flash is becoming more popular today? More contests, more people experimenting with this? Definitely. Yeah. Can you talk about what that genre is compared to the short story? Just a second. Sure. Well, there are different definitions of flash, but I think most people would consider it to be um, fiction of under a thousand words. And for different contests, there might be different lengths. There are, there's um, a contest of 53 word flash fiction, uh, fiction under 500 or under 750, but generally speaking, under 1,000 is considered flash fiction. And it's particularly interesting because you have to tell a complete story with an economy of words, and so that requires compression of thought, Uh, there's not a lot of character development, so you have to do a lot of work in a short space in order to make it work. In episode nine of season one, uh, author Paul Martinak, the author of four novels, now five, that Cleo Rising is out, uh, reads an essay and excerpts from several of her books. The essay, a clip of which you'll hear in just a moment, is called Good to the Girls. Uh, It's about a woman who deals with a fallout of saying no to sex with the man uh, at the top of the food chain. We then have a conversation about first lines in books and another conversation about what it means to come out today as a lesbian. And finally, since writing lesbian fiction is Paula's genre of choice, uh, we talk about uh, Paula's effort and desire to make sure she uh, tells the story uh, of lesbian history accurately in her work. Good to the Girls 
It starts with an elevator. The doors slide open and your stomach flips. The commissioner is standing in the car, alone. You're a lowly civil servant. He is the guy at the top who answers to the governor, the guy who summons people. You remember he had summoned you once. It was six months earlier, and you had just landed a job as assistant curator in this Department of State Government, your first professional position. The job was a low rung on the ladder of power, nothing the guy at the top needed to approve. But a few days after you accepted, the woman who hired you called, embarrassed, and said the commissioner insisted on interviewing you too. I didn't realize, she'd said, and then, more confidently, it's just a formality. At the state's expense, you flew back so the commissioner could bestow his blessing on the choice his underlings had made. All you remember from the haze of that meeting was his affable statement that you both hailed from the same city. Your audience with him may have lasted ten minutes, but it made the offer official. You moved to the state, you started your job, and you didn't see him again for six months. Or maybe you did, in passing, without incident, nothing that sticks in memory. You made friends at work, the historian, the librarian, the archivist, and settled into your new life, brimming with optimism. Then one day you hop on the elevator, although you usually take the stairs, and there is the commissioner on his way to his top floor office. Suddenly, he's looking at you like you're a choice piece of real estate he's forgotten he owned. During the brief write-up, he asks innocent questions about how you're getting along, his steady gaze unnerving you. On your floor, you exit, hoping you've misunderstood. And you really hammer us <laughs> with this first <laughs> first line of this book here. Ada's daddy kept a postcard of three dead colored men in his toolbox. I mean, you're like, wow, do we have time to breathe now? <laughs> right. And so obviously you thought a lot about that first line. Do you think right. about first lines of books? Uh, I do think about first lines of books. I thought, as I said, this is a novel and story, so I actually thought about the first line of, I had to think about the every, first line every of every chapter. every chapter, right. <laughs> right. Um, which I probably wouldn't do in, in a more, when I've written a more traditional novel, I don't think about the first line of each chapter that, that closely. Um, but because I wanted these to stand on their own as well as to tell a complete story of her life, um, I did that. And it was just, I mean, this, um, I had, uh, this is kind of, it's not based on anything that I experienced, but I had seen uh, photos of lynchings um, long ago. There was a, an exhibit that came to New York City, and um, it stayed with me, and um, you know those images don't don't leave you once mm -hmm. once you've seen them. So um, I was thinking about that when I wrote that first line, and how how it would be seared into her into her memory, and how important that how important that moment would be for her, um, and how it would resonate throughout her life. Um, so bring so it bring it forward to the to, to now. I mean, I know that in the last ten years. I mean, some could say it's been easier, but not. that's probably not the right word because it's still not always easy for people to come out, right? Right. It's, it can still be difficult. I think it's um, – I think the, the nice thing that we're seeing or the, the good as, – the, the really good aspect of, of all the decades of struggle that, that LGBT people have, have put in is, is that um, much younger people are feeling capable of coming out, so and younger people are – identifying uh, their sexual orientation much, much earlier. So you see, I have a friend who, you know, just told me that her 14-year-old daughter came out to her. So that was something mm -hmm. that we didn't do in, you know, right. in my generation right. or even uh, the generation after me. Um, so that's a really positive thing. But I don't, 
you know, and, and I worry about the the political climate really does affect this. You know, who the people in charge at the top are going to have a direct influence on on how uh, LGBT people are are treated. So, you know, under under other presidential administrations, it was a lot. Um, you know, there was a lot more loosening up, and and then we feel some tightening up again um, now because of uh, you know an atmosphere in in the political arena. Yeah, we- When I moved to New York in in the early 80s and I started taking workshops and everything, I I have been writing um, primarily lesbian material. I think I think that's my material. When I try to um, write something that that is different, it doesn't feel authentic to me. It mm-hmm. doesn't feel as meaningful. I'm also uh, I was trained as a historian, so um, that's my interest in in historical fiction. And so I do, I feel a responsibility to get our, our, you know, to present our history, to present LGBT history in a, in a, in a responsible way. In episode 10 of season one, author Judy Goldman, who's the author of six books, two memoirs, two novels, and two books of poetry, and who recently was awarded the Irene Blair Honeycutt Distinguished uh, Award at the uh, Sensoria Festival, uh, reads several of her poems and excerpts from two of her memoirs. Uh, In the clips you'll hear in just a moment, uh, she reads a poem, Sunday Night Driving Home. We also then have a conversation about how Judy went from writing poetry to prose to novels to memoir. And then some of Judy's advice uh, on memoir writing. And finally, an excerpt from her recent book, Together, A Memoir of a Marriage and a Medical Mishap. If I close one eye, the light from the dial looks like the tip of a cigarette. And my mother is smoking, the small fingers of her left hand moving to her lips, then to the curve of the front seat close to my father's shoulder. Her hand is a pigeon in the shadows that fly in from the road. My sister and I lie across the back seat, our shoes touching, each of us resting on a pillow pressed to the glass. I think my sister is sleeping. She's missing the talk from the front seat. How Aunt Katie seems worse and maybe should be taken away for a while. My mother appears to nod instead of saying the word yes to my father. I hear less and less of their low tones until suddenly the sound of wheels spinning gravel and I know without opening my eyes we are home. I also know that my father will first lift my sister and carry her in, return for me, placing me lightly in the narrow bed next to hers, folding the sheet back over the blanket and smoothing it flat with the palm of his hand. Then he'll touch my face, listen to me breathe, and reach for the switch on the lamp that separates our twin beds like the tall brass branch of a family tree. And wrote poetry for years, two poetry books. I was set to be a poet for life, and all of a sudden my lines started getting longer, and I was no longer writing in stanzas. I was yearning to write prose. So Mm -hmm. I started doing commentaries for public radio. That got me... Mm -hmm into prose it eased me into prose and then I wrote my first novel and that's really what I was yearning to do was to write prose 
But fiction never felt at home to me. So mm-hmm. then I ended up in memoir, which is a circle, because mm-hmm. memoir is really close to writing poetry. But you've written some fiction. Right? Oh, I wrote two yeah, novels, yeah, yeah. yeah. But they <laughs> almost don't count in my brain. <laughs> I don't know how to invent. I don't okay. want to invent. All you authors out there, you know, writing two novels, it doesn't count. It does not count. It, because I don't know how to make up stories. I just want to tell the stories that happened to me. Memory is what I'm in love with. And I just want, just before we get into those, just a little bit about uh, memoir writing. You're right. I mean, you can't tell this story without bringing in all the emotions, correct? I mean, you've got humor. You've got life changes. You've got sadness. And you you have... Hope. Yes. And you have your own reflection or your analysis or your interpretation of all those memories and the emotions they brought right but in order for it to be readable so to speak it it has to be something that also tugs at the emotions of the reader it can't just be a a story about what happened on x date and y date and so forth you you actually weave your storytelling skills into your memoir correct well that's what we try to do yeah and that's what we hope we're doing i mean i hope i I'm te- I'm saying to the reader, this is what happened to me, and that would be boring. That would just be a diary entry or a journal entry. Right. But what I th- hope lifts it from that is my reflection and my interpreting for the reader what it means, and then maybe the reader connects with that reflection. And that leads the reader into his or her own memory that might be similar to mine or really in opposition to mine. What about this, I ask, massaging his ankles. Can you feel me doing this? I can't. Now I'm reaching under the sheet and rubbing his calves. No. I reach farther and touch his knees, thighs, groin, buttocks, No, 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 no. He feels nothing. I feel everything. One minute, you're complaining that the zinc-based sunscreen you're supposed to wear in the Caribbean goes on like Elma's glue. The next, you're Googling paralysis. Everything is okay, then nothing is. That thin line, how a brush fire can erupt on a perfectly sunny, clear-skied day. How your life can be taken right out of your hands. In episode 11 of season one, the last episode of the season, uh, we laughed a bit. Author Tracy Curtis, a former syndicated humor columnist for the McClatchy Company Nationwide, wrote over 500 columns for the Charlotte Observer and then published her Humor Me trilogy, collection of her columns from the last decade about the imperfection of motherhood. She read six of her essays uh, on the show, two from Beach Bummed, uh, two from Trophy Mom, and two from Holidazed. In the clips that follow, you're going to hear a conversation uh, with Tracy about where the humor comes from and sometimes the struggles uh, along the way. We also have a funny conversation about uh, where she got the cover for her books, in particular, 
the legs that appear on the book cover. Uh, and we also talk about how Tracy makes up blurbs for her book because it just takes too much time to get them. And finally, Tracy reads from my favorite essay on the episode. It's called Pitch Imperfect. So do a lot of your, is a lot of your material, you joked about, you know, the, the husbands and the material, but does a lot of your material just sort of bubble up from these real life situations that married couples and mothers and their kids engage in? I mean, just things that everybody experiences that drives them crazy sometimes, but then you find sort of a humorous side to it and kind of try to bring that out. Yeah, I mean, if I was really going to, like, psychoanalyze myself, and now that it's been a couple years since I've been writing for the paper, I've been able to kind of reflect on what I was writing and when I was writing it. And I think, like a lot of, like, you know, the, the Robin Williams and the Kevin Hart's of the world, you know, they write from pain and anxiety and fear and, and personal um, experiences. And I think... For me, humor in a lot of ways is a coping mechanism. And sometimes it's better just to kind of find the funny or easier for, for me to find the funny in something than maybe to really take a hard look at it. Um, the reality is halfway through the 10-year the period of writing the newspaper, um, you know, I'm this family humor columnist in the paper writing these witty stories every Sunday. But behind the scenes... Um, my actual family was starting to fall apart. And um, I think that, you know, a lot of married couples struggle and there's a lot that's like not funny about it, of course. But I think that sort of going through that separation at a time where I was sharing so much of my personal life with people, I somewhere instinctively was trying to find a way to um, make light of what was becoming a really difficult situation. Um, and so some people read my things and say, oh, that's so funny, haha. Ha. And some people say, gosh, that's funny, but kind of funny, sad. I never really looked at it that way. But looking back at some of the things that I've written, I think that there was some sadness underneath and that I was just trying to handle things in the best way that I could. So we're not going to get into the whole psychoanalytic. Stuff today. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm like crying. I can see it in your eyes. Like you're, most, you're, most you're, depressing <laughs> show I've ever been a part of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, put, <laughs> had to put a parental warning on this one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I got to ask you. You've got some some catchy uh, covers on your books here. With um, did you have to like? I mean, where'd these legs come from? You've got, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it started the first book I published. By the way, for the listeners who can't see, the t you can go out and, and you can go to Tracy's website, which is, by the way, your website, Tracy? Uh, yeah. TracyLeeCurtis.com. Okay. If you go there, you'll see these great pictures of these titles with a woman holding up a sign. You can see her eyes. Are those your eyes? Th that is my head, my eyes, my hair, okay. my fingers. Your fingers. As we get below the sign below the sign <laughs> are like this like amazing <laughs> pair of uh, perfect legs uh that i purchased on shutterstock for 25 dollars. you can buy legs on shutterstock you, you get, on sale now yes for the low low <laughs> price of 25 dollars, you too landis can have okay. perfect legs so this is top-notch journalism here We're, i've just discovered we got different sets of legs on the covers of these books right <laughs> yes. i mean that's that's kind of deceptive that's, if you, you know? put them all together you're like yeah they're not quite okay you know but i do like that people do 
assume that those are my legs. I try to be honest, um, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> well, a um, couple of reviews here for uh, Trophy Mom, Hope Springs Maternal. You've got, uh, I'm surprised to read Tracy still doesn't know how to cook, former mother-in-law. What? She doesn't cook? Soon to be mother-in-law. <laughs> I don't get the title. Did you win something? Mom. Yeah. See, I mean, your reviewers, I mean, they're coming to your aid here, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, it's very hard to secure blurbs. And so um, clearly, I, you know, I wanted to have uh, the perfect blurb um, to fit the, the perfect. <laughs> so just make one up, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just make it up. I stole that from uh, Tina Fey. Tina Fey wrote a book called Bossy Pants. Right. And all of her blurbs she wrote herself and attributed to, like, you know, her high school boyfriend and her chemistry <laughs> teacher and her dad, you know. And I thought, I'm totally doing that. So this one's called Pitch Imperfect. Watching a Yankees game on TV with my boys, I figured out what bothers me about baseball. Nothing ever happens. There's a guy pitching to another guy, hoping he'll hit it. Hoping to put the ball in play so the game can start. But there's no guarantee he'll hit it. There's no guarantee anybody will hit it. In fact, it's such a possibility that no one will hit it that there's a term for it. It's called a no-hitter. It's the only sport that has a term for nothing happen. They even created a position dedicated to catching the balls the batters don't hit. The catcher. He gets paid a million dollars to keep a four-hour game from turning into an eight-hour game by saving the batter from having to run after all the balls he misses. But they're hopeful. They have another term for when somebody actually hits the ball, but still nothing happens. A perfect game. A game where they hit the ball, but nobody makes it to a base. To me, the perfect game, at least the perfect game to watch, would be everybody hitting it and everybody getting on bases and scoring runs. A sport with the most people involved seems to have the least amount of action. Not much happens in golf, but at least they're in constant motion the entire four hours. In baseball, if somebody hits the ball, the action lasts six seconds and the guy's only gone 90 feet. Best case scenario, he does the biggest thing you can do in baseball, which is hit a home run. But even that only takes 20 seconds, and he ends up right back where he started, while Ernie Els ends up in the clubhouse with a beer in his hand. Do you know how many pitches there are? Fastball, knuckleball, spitball, screwball, 10 ways to throw it, but only one way to hit it. Seems to me they should throw it one way and come up with 20 ways to make contact with it. But here we sit watching one guy throw a ball to another guy while somebody stands in the middle and takes swipes at it. If you think about it, it's really just a nice game of catch between the pitcher and the catcher. And every now and then, somebody interrupts them by hitting it. Baseball is interrupted catch. I guess that's why every dad on the planet takes their son out to play catch. Because in the majors, if you're the pitcher or the catcher, then you're the one really playing baseball. And everybody's watching. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> how many letters... <laughs> emails uh, did you get about the purity of the game of baseball and how you don't understand what the heck you're talking about <laughs> you get a few of those <laughs> just a few um my favorite was um you're an embarrassment to baseball an embarrassment <laughs> to the charlotte observer and an embarrassment to the city of charlotte well that's it for today 11 fine authors from season one giving voice to the written words if you'd like to hear the complete readings and interviews from Season 1, you can listen at our website, charlottereerspodcast.com, or wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. And if you like the show, we'd appreciate your help in spreading the word. You can do that in a few simple ways that won't cost you a cent. First, please tell your friends. And please subscribe to the podcast, which is free, 
and leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews are the gasoline that drive traffic to the podcast. Please connect with us on social media. Our social media links and our YouTube link with author videos are at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. And if you sign up for our email list at our website, we'll give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up for our email list, we promise not to spam you. That takes way too much time. We'll just send you periodic updates about the show. Next week, we have our preview episode for Season 3, a season which will include 14 episodes and 18 authors. I hope you'll join us. Until then, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Reader's Podcast.